0: This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Last week, we heard from nationally renowned gardener Margaret Roach, in which she shared one of her greatest hopes, and that is for people younger than her to be taking up the work of stewarding this world of cultivating our places for food, for beauty, for biodiversity, and for the deep love of this planet. So over the next two weeks, we'll be speaking with two different women doing just that. This week, we revisit our conversation from last fall with Leah Peniman, co-founder of Soul Fire Farm and author of Farming While Black. Enjoy. Enjoy. I'm a big believer in the idea that if there's something we're concerned about in this world, there are gardeners and gardens working to address that concern from their hearts and through the power of their gardening impulse. Some of the greatest concerns of our world—violence, poverty, the climate crisis, social injustice, inequality, well-being, community, peace, nature deficit disorder, and just about all of the isms— Elitism, classism, ageism, sexism, racism are all being offset in our world in ways large and small by gardeners like you and near you. The egregious disconnect and disservice to humanity that is racism in all its forms in all of us and in our world can be and sometimes are, I'm horrified to say, perpetuated by limited conceptualizations of gardening in our world. In cultural perceptions and marketing propaganda that my friend Leslie Bennett refers to as the unbearable whiteness of gardening. But that is a false and disingenuous lens on what it is to be a gardener and who are gardeners in this world. It is a disservice to the intersectional space that gardening is and gardens are. Like any universal connector that our cultural literacy rests on, food, art, music, history, literature, faith, family, and love, gardening is something that connects us all. When I first encountered the work of Leah Penniman at Soul Fire Farm in upstate New York, I was stunned and amazed and expanded and grateful and admiring. With the publication of her first book, Farming While Black, I am even more grateful for her work in this world. Leah is co-founder with her husband and children of Soul Fire Farm in Petersburg, New York, a working farm committed to ending racism and injustice in the food system. The Soul Fire Farm community raise life-giving food, and through that food, celebration, education, and advocacy, they act in solidarity with people marginalized by food apartheid. As the farm website states, with deep reverence for the land and wisdom of our ancestors, we work to reclaim our collective right to belong to the earth and to have agency in the food system. We bring diverse communities together on this healing land to share skills on sustainable agriculture, natural building, spiritual activism, health, and environmental justice. We're training the next generation of activist farmers and strengthening the movements for food sovereignty and community self-determination. Leah's new book, Farming While Black, shares her work and her life experiences leading to this work. Leah joins us today via Skype from her home at Soul Fire Farm. Welcome, Leah. Thank you so much for having me today. So let's get started with you describing a little bit more for listeners the look, the feel, the activities of Soul Fire Farm as it is today, Leah.
1: Absolutely. Well, Soulfire Farm is a black and brown lead community farm in the cold mountains of upstate New York. And today is a typical fall day. It's a Wednesday, and we're packing our CSA that's our community supported agriculture. Program where we deliver fresh, healthy food to around 400 individuals living in the capital district of New York. And the majority of people who receive this food are living under food apartheid. They're living under a system where They cannot access fresh vegetables at the supermarket because there are not supermarkets and because food is outpriced uh, and geographically distant. And we have the van has gone out full of our fall crops. We have squash and leeks, sweet potatoes, as well as many crops that are indigenous to this continent like amaranth and maize. We're also busy getting ready for a speaking tour on Farming While Black. So that is where we're at in this very moment at Soulfire Farm.
0: We'll get into some more specifics about the farm itself and its size and, and the community of people who live there. But I'd like to go back just a little bit now to your early influences that brought you into relationship with plants to start with, Leah? Talk a little bit about that for us.
1: Oh, thank you for that question. Yeah, plants were my first friends. Uh, My siblings and I were one of the only brown families, mixed-race families in our rural town in the Northeast, and our peers were cruel. Uh, We experienced a lot of social exclusion and bullying and difficulty in our rural school district. So the three of us turned to nature. We turned to plants as our friends, our solace, our witnesses, and spent all of our time inventing games in the forest um, and developing this deep kinship. So when loggers would come to clear the forest or hunters would come and remove deer for a sport, that, was, that became a personal affront to us. So from a very young age, uh, we considered ourselves environmental stewards, environmental activists, and would organize to protect uh, the, the landscape that we love. So when I became a teenager and, and it was time to get my first job, uh, there was no doubt that it had to be something connected to nature. I felt, it, I felt duty bound. And so I uh, started working with the food project in, in the Boston area when I was 16 and became hooked on farming as this intersection between loving the earth and loving caring for the human community. And mm-hmm. I've been farming now for over 22 years.
0: You are also a one of the women included in a book that I am in the middle of writing uh, for Timber Press on women in horticulture. So I want to say that for just full disclosure, you have shared with me a beautiful story about being a young girl and your your friendship with trees and a specific tree and your. Sort of growing intellectual awareness about scientific and physical processes. And will you describe that that relationship with the tree, Leah?
1: Well, as a young person, I remember in science class learning that trees photosynthesize, that they you know are able to absorb carbon dioxide and make sugars and then release oxygen as a as a byproduct. And I put it together, well, then, if I am able to absorb oxygen and release, release CO2, then there's this synergy, you know, between trees. I didn't yet understand that trees also undergo cellular respiration, which is a side point. But I would, I would quite <laughs> literally go into the forest and hold onto a tree and imagine that my breath was nourishing that tree, and that that tree's breath was nourishing me, and that we were breathing together.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's such a beautiful articulation of. Um, You know, while maybe a a simple view, uh, but it is the truth, too. It is how it works on this planet for us with our plants and um, at the heart of uh, relationship between us and them, whether or not we see it. And it gets into a little bit part of the heart of your work. So you're in Boston. You're at the Food Project. You get hooked on this idea of, of growing food. And being in relationship with the natural environment and with your human communities, what goes, what what happens from there?
1: Well, I was so full of passion and energy at that point because farming was this antidote to all of the confusion and identity struggles I was experiencing as Uh, young black woman. And I went on to get a job at the farm school in central Massachusetts, and then many hands organic farm. And I started to encounter some struggles because unlike the food project, which was a mixed race, black, brown, white, rural, urban community, these working farms were white spaces. And the conferences that I started to attend and the books that I started to read, those were white dominated. And I became very curious about whether I had a place in the so-called sustainable farming, good food movement. Mm -hmm. If I was being a race trader, if I really belonged, because I didn't see mentors. I didn't see leaders who looked like me outside of the urban areas. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I met Karen Washington, um, who is the founder of the National Black Urban Growers and a farmer at Rise and Root Farm. I met her at one of these conferences because I had quite literally gone around with little slips of paper that said, you know, meet in this place at 1 p.m. And I gave them to everyone who looked Black, Latinx, Asian or Indigenous. And there were maybe 10 of us. And we all got together. Karen was one of them. And she said, Leah, don't give up. Like one day we are going to have a conference of our own. And true enough, in 2010, she did start a national black farmers conference, uh, which I just came back from this weekend. It's like a family reunion. There's hundreds of returning generation farmers. That was a pivotal point where I decided rather than looking around to others to validate whether I belong, to find the strength to stand on the shoulders of my ancestors and, and push forward with this vision of food and land sovereignty for black people.
0: Yeah. Talk about the, the intersection of your own family history, your, your growing family with your husband and young children in early careerhood. That experience that then ties into this farming passion and food advocacy, that leads you to describe what is sometimes called a food desert. You use the term food apartheid very consciously and meaningfully talk about the experience that leads you to use this language for good purpose Mm. yeah so my
1: beloved partner Jonah of now 18 years Mm -hmm. uh, is also a farmer and when we were living in Albany New York with our newborn uh, son and our two-year-old daughter we were living in a neighborhood under food apartheid. And food apartheid is a term that we use rather than the governmental term of food desert, because a food desert is a natural and beautiful ecosystem. And the system of segregation that we have in terms of who has access to good food and who experiences (laughs) scarcity really is a human-created entity and something that we would not attribute to the natural world. So it's apartheid. We were living in a situation where we had an immense difficulty getting fresh vegetables into our bodies and the bodies of our children. Uh, there were no supermarkets, no farmers markets, no uh, community garden plots. So we ended up joining a CSA farm share and it was more expensive than our rent. It was a 2.2 mile walk if you don't have a car, which we did not. And so we would put the, the older one in the stroller and the little one on the back and walk all the way up uh, to get the food and then pile it all on top of the stroller and the child, and, and that was how we were able to access these foods. So when our neighbors discovered that we had farming knowledge and experience and aspirations, there there was a clamor uh, for us to start the farm for the people and to bring fresh food into that neighborhood. And that was the uh, proximal impetus for Soulfire Farm to come come into being with the specific mission to end food apartheid. Yeah.
0: And and it's not even just to end it, but God willing, yes, end it. The but it's also to even bring the the awareness of it to, to the world and to a larger audience, which is clearly so much of the, you know, sorry to sound cliche, but the fire of your farm and the fire of your story, which is illuminating for anybody. Um and you know, I, I When I'm reading the book and in interview with you to to hear about, you know, these young, educated parents making very conscious choices to not own a car, to not buy into a fossil fuel economy and to try and do the right things. And in so doing, not be able to have access to fresh food. Uh, And as you say, it's a it's a human construct Uh, and if we don't, if we don't see it that way, we can't address it that way. And that's what then brings us into, um, you and Jonah and the kids starting this farm. So describe that moment where you're like, okay, we're we're gonna, we're gonna do this. We're gonna find the land. Here we go.
1: I mean, thank goodness we were in our early twenties and full of naive (laughs) energy because, you know, we had been farmers and we had those skills, but we had no idea what we were in for finding the land was the easy part. I mean, the land in many ways chose us. I remember the first time stepping onto these hallowed grounds, feeling as if the land herself reached out tendrils of connection and bound our ankles to her. Like this is soul fire. Uh, so, you know, we used the savings that I had from my public school teaching job and we paid cash for the land and we thought we were all good. Um, Only to find out that the land purchase price itself is very small compared to the cost of Mm -hmm. putting in a driveway and septic and electric and building a house and (laughs) barns and not to mention all the rest. So it's been a slow and steady process because both of us are working jobs in the community and then using you know whatever we can set aside to slowly develop the land over time uh, so it took it, for, it took us four years just to be able to live out here and, mm-hmm. and we're still catching up to ourselves as far as infrastructure uh, but but our children were very involved I mean we have a timber frame straw bale passive solar house made from local materials and there's these pictures all around the walls of our toddler uh, and early elementary age children with giant mallets pounding pegs into place and (laughs) trowels, you know, plastering the walls. So, you know, this house is love to us. This land is love because it's our, it's our sweat and our calluses and our blood quite literally that is in this foundation that we dug with shovels. Um, And, and here we are, you know, every year I think about quitting and every year the land reminds me of my destiny in <laughs> life and just keep on, keep on
0: going. Not so quick. Not so quick, Leah. So how many acres is it? And, and describe a little bit about the the exposure and the climate that you're in there and then talk about the different layers you've added on each year in terms of what you grow as well as what you do.
1: Sure. Uh, So the boundaries of this property uh, include 72 acres, of which about 60 are forested. We cultivate seven in a combination of vegetables, herbs, fruits, pasture raised chicken for meat and eggs and a pond uh, stocked with trout as well as a little bit of maple sugar and a little bit of shiitake mushroom. Mm -hmm. So we have a diversified and holistic agricultural system here on this land and three buildings that we've created. Uh, One is our family home and education center. There is a barn with an apartment on top where our staff live and a wood shop with a small dormitory on top for our program participants. Uh, And we're sort of constantly trying to raise funds and raise time to expand that because we host Now, well over 4,000 people a year for our various training programs. And uh, we're we're busting at the seams, all sharing a couple showers and toilets and one kitchen. You know, over the years, as I mentioned, we started out focusing primarily on getting food to our neighbors in the south end of Albany. Uh, It was a very part time farm. I did it almost entirely myself the first couple of years on Sundays and after school, uh, after teaching at, at high school. And I would, you know, pack up the veggies with my kids and deliver it after Hebrew school. That was that was the farm at first. And every year we added something because we were listening to what our community told us they needed. Mm -hmm. First, it was youth programming. They said our kids are getting criminalized and picked up off the street because they have nothing to do. Can you create something for them? Then it was a cold call from Boston, from Coffee Dixon, saying, there needs to be some training programs for black women like me who want to farm that are culturally relevant and respectful. Like, can you create something? So we created our black Latinx farmers immersion and Mm. it filled up immediately. Mm. We created more sessions. We have a a two year waiting list for this program. You know, then we had graduates from the program and they were saying, well, this is nice. Now we know we have some farming skills, but we don't have lands. We don't have resources. So now we, we have, Regional and national organizing to change policy and to catalyze reparations. We're forming a, a land trust to uh, transfer land back to indigenous and black people from whom it was stolen. So uh, there's it's become quite uh, mm-hmm. complex and intricate <laughs> Um series of engagements that we do, but all of them, you know, come from that same root of like the love of land, the love of people, the love of justice, and just listening to what our community needs and not pretending that we can assume that for them.
0: Yeah. The youth program, um, how many, how many youth do you have each year? And what kinds of messages and skills are you able to pass on that you feel really address some of the, the core issues there?
1: Well, you know, our young folks, so often the only messages they get told, black and brown youth in particular, is that they really have no future, no value, that their, their destiny is going to be incarceration or early death. Uh, so why invest, right? The whole idea of like planting a tree and harvesting nuts 10 years later is not seen as relevant mm-hmm. to folks who are so focused on survival because of the type of oppression they're living under. And certainly... It's even more rare for them to see examples of people who look like them, who are not doing wage labor, you know, who are living out their dream, who are owning businesses, who are making change. And so the youth program, while it definitely centers on farming skills, I mean, we're we're a farm and we teach farming and cooking and, you know, ecology and food justice, even more important is, is just that little glimpse that something more is possible that like, maybe I don't have the whole story, you know, take for example, Dijor Carter, who came to the farm a few years ago, uh, as a teenager and like so many, you know, very hesitant to come out into nature. There's a lot of, uh, understandable and justifiable fear that young folks have of rural spaces. So he's trying to stay in the van, not look at anybody, not talk to anyone, earbuds in hood up. And we went for a tour with the other youth and he didn't want to be left behind because something might get him. So he decided to come along, but he didn't, he was concerned because he had new sneakers, didn't want to get those dirty. So we said, well, you can take them off. And all the young people just started laughing and, you know, no way, but weighing the options to be left alone, dirty sneakers, bare feet. He took off his shoes. So then other youth started taking off their shoes mm. and they didn't listen to anything on the tour. They were so focused on the feeling of that wet, warm mud be- between mm. their toes. And this young man, Dijon, at the very end, you know, he said, I was not about this Miss. but when my feet, when my bare feet touched the earth,
0: mm.
1: I swear to you, my grandmother, who's been dead many years, came up like through my feet (laughs) to my heart and told me and like reminded me about the times we used to garden together. And she would put worms into my hands and we would, you know, have this, this connection. And I just felt like I belonged here. It was the strangest thing. (laughs) And it's like moments like those about just this expansion of perspective, expansion of possibility, and this feeling of like, this is our place too, Mm -hmm. uh, is what is, is really important. And so we have around... I think this year it was around 500 youth that came through the program. Uh, Most just come for a day or two, but we do have this one particular cohort of young people, 20 young people who have been with us now for several years. And we do a week-long training with them each year and do follow-up mentorship. They are are the youth version of our Black Latinx farmers immersion. And these these young people are fire. They're gonna be the the future land-based activists and leaders, so watch out for them.
0: I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place, We'll be back after a break to continue our conversation with Leah on the important work at Soulfire Farm and her new book, Farming While Black. Stay with us. Hey, it's me. Towards the end of this conversation, Leah mentions that at the intersection of where you see a need for justice or help in this world— and your own interests. This is where you will find your purpose in the world. I often say this exact thing to gardeners, that whatever you are most passionate about or concerned about in the world, whether it be literacy, social justice, environmentalism, cultural literacy, pollinator loss, or peace, there's a garden for that, and there's a gardener working on that. Leah Penniman, is so clearly an illustration of exactly this. She fiercely lives this work with love in this world. Leah recognized early in her life that to see a difference, she would have to be it. Think of the amount of courage, let alone hard, hard work, over and over again, that it takes to be the reflection of what you wanna see in this world. For those who are following you, for those who work beside you, this kind of courage is not to be underestimated. I believe that to greater or lesser extent, this is what all of our gardens can represent. Leah has scaled this belief up to its highest manifestation. I hope you are as expanded, inspired, and humbled, energized by Leah's work at Soul Fire Farm as I am. Now, back to our conversation with Leah. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back with Leah Peniman, co-founder with her husband and children of Soul Fire Farm in Petersburg, New York. Soul Fire Farm, now a cooperatively owned not-for-profit venture, works, quote, With deep reverence for the land and wisdom of our ancestors, to reclaim our collective right to belong to the earth and to have agency in the food system, we bring diverse communities together on this healing land to share skills on sustainable agriculture, natural building, spiritual activism, health and environmental justice." When we left her, she had just shared a powerful story of connecting Black and brown youth to the land there. And we return now to learn more from Leah about Soul Fire Farm's Black Latinx and Indigenous Farmers Immersion Program. The Black Latinx and
1: Indigenous Farmers Immersion Program came out of all of these anecdotal stories we were hearing from, from aspiring Black and brown farmers that they were not able to get into training programs or if they did, they experienced all kinds of discrimination, microaggressions. You know, For example, one young man told us he was doing a volunteer work trade at a farm out in a rural area, no transportation, no way to get off the farm. And while he's working side by side, picking beans with the white farmer, this person said to him, can I ask you something? Why is it that black men always abandon their children? which of course is untrue right completely racist and inappropriate and deeply disconcerting for this person who's beholden you know to to this farmer and so experiences like this have made it very difficult so often the way that aspiring farmers are able to access training is through these work trades where you don't have a wage. Uh, you need to have some sort of outside income for a certain amount of time or you need to find your own housing in a rural area. And and these barriers to entry are things we wanted to address. Mm-hmm. So we created the immersion program to provide a culturally relevant, you know, historically rooted, joyful, uh, safe space to learn how to farm. So folks come. Uh, 20 at a time. It's a mixed level group from beginners to intermediate. And we spend about half our day doing hands-on farming uh, with lots of instruction. So we're learning how to test our soil, manage the greenhouse, rotate the flock of chickens, you know, make herbal salves and preserves. And then we spend the other half the day in more of a classroom setting with workshops. My favorite thing to teach is about cation exchange capacity, which is essentially the you know, stickiness of soil, but we teach about that using, you know, metaphors from hip hop and from our cultural traditions. And something that I think is unique and really special about the immersion program is we don't shy away from the trauma that our folks have inherited through the centuries of land-based oppression, of Mm -hmm. enslavement and sharecropping and tenant farming and and violent uh, expulsion from territory. So this actually alters our DNA, like right? this trauma gets passed down. And we address it directly by using Afro indigenous healing methods like herbal baths and drumming and dancing and, and story and listening. And in this way, we're able to, you know, reach back beyond those centuries of oppression to thousands of years of noble and dignified relationship with the earth and as my friend Chris Bolden Newsom likes to say, you know, while the land was the scene of the crime, the land herself was not the crime. Yes. And so it's about untangling that relationship. And we've had now oh, I don't know, about 5 or 600 folks go through this mm-hmm. immersion program and we track everyone down and survey them and see what they're up to and And over eighty percent are farming, gardening, or doing food justice leadership, which is a really powerful testament uh, to the strength of the community and the learning that we do together. Yeah
0: not only do you address that trauma, but you reframe the entire narrative that our culture has handed to all of us in terms of where Black and brown and indigenous people fit into this narrative and what their, um, their real and more fully understood roles are. And this is one of the things that in reading Farming While Black, a- as a reader, you just – you think to yourself, wow – I did not know that. I didn't understand that. I'm thinking here of some of the, you know, early agricultural innovations and adaptations that move the entire agricultural world forward uh, that were achieved by black and brown people and then were obscured over in the narrative. And as well, the, the land ownership and land um loss and it's the stealing of land is is a really interesting historical thread to follow in the book and clearly something that comes up in in these immersion programs to help reframe the entire like conversation and historical accuracy
1: absolutely yeah the food system is not broken it was designed on stolen land and stolen labor and continues uh, to perpetuate itself on these premises. And it's a history that we don't often think about. You know, Certainly folks hopefully know about the genocide and land theft that impacted millions of Native people and also know about the kidnapping of, of 12 million African humans from their homeland to, to do unpaid labor. But that legacy of of exploitation continues, you know, and it, there's a lot to say about it. There was sharecropping and tenant farming. There's the black codes. There's the exclusion of farm workers from labor protection starting in the 1930s, you know, redlining and targeted violence by the Ku Klux Klan against black landowners for the audacity to have their own farms and to get off the plantations. Mm -hmm. There's You know, decades of USDA discrimination, which was considered by the U.S. Commission of Civil Rights as the the number one driver of black land loss. So this is the backdrop. Right. But even more obscured are the noble contributions of black and brown people Mm -hmm. to sustainable agriculture Mm -hmm. and to cooperative farming movements. So Fannie Lou Hamer, for example, we hopefully know about the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party and her political organizing for civil rights. A lot of folks do not know that she was also a committed farmer who started Freedom Farm Cooperative with 70 families that provided food, housing, college loans, burial fees to its members. And she is uh, known for saying to her mentees, You know, if you have 400 quarts of greens and gumbo soup canned up for the winter, nobody can push you around or tell you what to do. So she was just one of the mamas of of co-ops, right? We have Booker T. Whatley from Tuskegee Institute in Alabama, who came up with Pick Your Own and the CSA. Hmm. Uh, George Washington Carver, one of the fathers of organic agriculture, who did diversified horticulture and and. and crop rotation and many, many, many more. So it was just so healing to be able to gather mm-hmm. these stories and to reframe the narrative so that, you know, we're not on the outskirts.
0: It is illuminating to to read and to, to follow with you through the book in these elements. The other aspect that you touch on in your description of the immersion program, which didn't start out, I think, from what I from what I recall of our, our other conversations, it didn't come to you naturally. Like you describe yourself quite rightly as a science nerd, you excel in these areas of your studies. This is what you taught in the public school, high school level, uh, is science and physics and biology and chemistry. And somewhere in the early stages of the immersion program, it became clear that there were some spiritual aspects. That were wanted and needed. And you and Jonah, uh, who is of a Jewish background and tradition, you had these in your private life, but you didn't necessarily pull them into the classes right from the beginning. And so when you talk about things like cleansing herbal baths to address some of the trauma, this grew in time. Describe that growth because I think that that spiritual intersection with the science and the skills is really what starts to bring this all together into a whole Leah Peniman and this story.
1: Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. As a, as a scientist, as you say, I I felt that my spirituality was private and maybe even inappropriate to bring into a learning space. So, I would be happy to go ahead and teach you know how soil aggregates impact the friability of your your tilling system mm-hmm. and then Go inside at night and make offerings at my shrine to the Orisha, uh, or do my herbal bath before bed. And I, I really didn't mix those worlds because it just seemed, it seemed irrelevant. Uh, it seemed highly personal. And the more I witnessed, the real yearning for healing, the real yearning for connection. It was, folks described it as if coming to Soulfire Farm was like remembering something they didn't know they'd forgotten. Mm. It was like awakening a thirst they didn't know they had. And as I started to dabble and share just a little bit, so maybe at the beginning of the tour, we'll pour some libation to the land or we'll start to sing some songs before dinner to give gratitude to the earth. If anyone's interested in an herbal bath after you kill chickens, that's a Haitian tradition, you know, to to mark the end of that period of the day and return to a place of peace and serenity. You know, you're welcome to the pond. And everybody would come and everybody would resonate um, deeply. And so I got bolder um, in the sharing. And I have to say it was, in some ways, in retrospect, a little bit silly to have kept it private for so long. Because when I first went to Ghana as a young woman, it was in 2001 to 2002, I was, I trained and I was initiated and installed as a queen mother, which is a particular kind of clergy in the traditional religion of Vodun. And I was told by the queen mothers that my duty was to take their ways of being and their practices back to the United States and share them with my community. And I agreed to that, you know, but I didn't understand how to implement it. It really wasn't until we were well into the work at Soul Fire Farm that it became clear that our people didn't need to interact with the earth as if she were a material commodity. They didn't just need to plant seeds, plant little packages of DNA and then harvest you know, bundles of carbohydrates. Our people needed to reconnect to the life that is the earth and to the ancestors beneath the earth. And there was no way to di- to divorce the spiritual, you know, from the material. Which is not to say that folks have to practice Vodun or Ifa or Judaism. We are very intentional about making space for people who are secular, Christian, Muslim, any religion. Um, But it also means that we do share our whole selves and we make the invitation. And then we also invite others to share their whole selves and make the invitation.
0: Yeah. Why is the farm named Soul Fire Farm, Leah?
1: (laughs) Well, we tried to have a democratic process and usually those go well. Uh, We reached out to our whole community and, you know, they came up with names and we had a vote and the the top name just wasn't great. You know, I was willing to go with it because democracy, but Jonah's like, nah. So as we were unwinding, figuring out what to do, listening to the radio, this uh, Lee Scratch Perry reggae song comes on called Soul Fire. And Jonah's like, this is it this is the name. <laughs> it is the, the passion, you know, the fire, the drive for justice. And it is the rooted soul spirit of the lands of uh, ancestors of the divine. And he was right. I feel like that song came on the radio for a reason, uh, because the name, it resonates, it resonates and it connects um, and it encapsulates in, in just a few syllables what we're really about.
0: I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. We're speaking today with Leah Peniman of Soul Fire Farm, based in upstate New York. We'll be right back. So, thinking out loud here this week, Leah uses the term proximal impetus to describe the moment when her desire to not only feed her own family, but to help feed the neighbors in her community in urban Albany, New York. This combined urgency was the proximal impetus that got she and Jonah and their young children to look for and buy the land that is now the cooperatively owned Seoul Fire Farm, committed to ending racism in the food system. When I think back on my own life and work, and I think of different moments where proximal impetus moved me in one direction over another, I am both moved and fascinated by what gets us to finally embrace what the universe has clearly intended for us. For me, the beginning of cultivating place was such a moment. Our larger culture, and even we ourselves as gardeners, often dismiss or diminish the power and influence possible through our gardens and gardening. I really believe that our best selves are brought to bear in the garden, and if we can tap into them and bring them to bear more regularly, more consciously on the concerns of the bigger world, just think of the potential offsetting that diminishment and dismissal of the power of gardening was the proximal impetus for me. I wonder, as you look at your own life, what is or would be the proximal impetus for you to celebrate the you that shows up in the garden and bring that person to the forefront of what you bring to the world every day? Hmm. Now, back to our conversation with Leah Penniman of Soul Fire Farm. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back with Leah Penniman of Soul Fire Farm, a working and cooperatively owned farm committed to ending racism and cultivating justice in our food system. Welcome back.
1: The world is just thirsty for authenticity and that's what we try to bring. And so, you know, in the past two days, I've sorted through one hundred and seventy five booking requests just, mm-hmm. and sad to say no to most of them, you know. And so there is this everyone is working really hard on our team. You know, I want to shout out. The farm team, you know, Larissa, Demaris, Letitia, Sessie, and Olive, and our program team, Amani and Jess and I, and Jonah, who builds and maintains the entire infrastructure. Like everyone is just working hard and we cannot satiate uh, the needs of our community. So that's that's one challenge. I think, you know, externally, a challenge that I readily embrace and was not expecting is in doing the organizing work to return lands to indigenous and black people from whom it was stolen. We're working to create a land trust that spans the New England states and upstate New York and is a collaboration between black indigenous and people of color to receive land reparations and then distribute that land through easements and through long-term leases to black and brown farmers. And naively, I just thought that all these groups should naturally get along because we're all impacted by colonization. Hmm. Uh, but of course, colonizers have a divide and conquer strategy and those mm-hmm. wounds run deep. So within Northeast indigenous communities and between black and indigenous communities, there's a lot of mistrust and a lot of healing that's needed. So I've had to slow that project down and really focus on the relationships, um, and the healing of past harms in order to be able to move forward. So that's a, a welcome challenge, but, mm-hmm. but a challenge nonetheless.
0: Yeah. Every piece of growth and learning leads to a whole nother kind of area that needs growth and learning and awareness and attention. And, you know, that's that's before you even get into um, just racism in integrated into our worldview in certainly in our country. The book and how you put it together, I think, really addresses some of your your great joys in this work. Some of the research and narrative reframing that we've already touched on. You have these wonderful elements in the book uh, that you call the uplifting which I think also kind of start to touch on some of the joy you derive and your family derives from, from this work. Talk a little bit about those joys, Leah. Oh, I
1: mean, there is just so many moments of wonder if we just Mm -hmm. remember to look up from our handsy work and look out and see the, the hawks landing and the leaves changing and the whisper of the, mycelium connecting the trees under the earth you know that it's just all of these moments of connection awaiting our presence and our witness yeah. a moment for me recently that brought a great deal of joy uh, was at the national black farmers conference in Durham North Carolina this past weekend and I asked the group of people gathered stand up if you are black and you love the earth and this five-year-old little boy stands up on a chair with both hands in the air <laughs> like that's me and to think about you know not just our ancestors not just our contemporaries but this legacy of mm-hmm. our descendants and to imagine what they're going to do standing on the shoulders of the work that we have accomplished together is is just so humbling uh and so exciting for me so that's what brings me great joy is thinking about this future stewardship yeah
0: I want to get into this idea of access to land and land reparations a little bit and have you describe a little bit more in detail the the network of people and organizations working on this for listeners to get a better sense of.
1: Sure. So... Our first reparations project came out of a conversation with one of our alumni, Viviana Moreno of Caratumbo Cooperative Farm in Chicago, which is an immigrant led uh, worker owned co-op. And she said, you know, while we're trying to get the government to give us back that 40 acres and a mule that we never got, you know, we need to just organize reparations amongst ourselves. And out of that conversation was born this map, which is a very simple idea. It's black and brown farmers put up on the map where their project is and what they need, whether it's lands, money, a tractor, you know, technical assistance. And then we organize folks in the community who have access to wealth, lands, privilege to go ahead and give that to folks projects. Um, and we've had. Uh, seven plus people receive uh, land and resource hmm. from this in just the few months that it's been up. Uh, but this is this is an interim measure. Obviously, we need uh, institutions to be built around it. So mm-hmm. with the land trust work in the Northeast, um, it's primarily organized by the Northeast Farmers of Color Network, which is an informal of a, it, it is an informal alliance of over a hundred. Uh, Black, Latinx, Indigenous, and Asian farmers in New England and upstate New York, uh, as well as about a dozen uh, tribal communities, including members of the Nipmuc, Wampanoag, Abenaki, and so on. Uh, we have quite a few. Allied, you know, white led organizations who are in the land trust space who are eager to lend their support. Mm -hmm. And right now we're in the process of forming our own internal governance structure so that that advice and support can land uh, into a pre-existing infrastructure rather than starting to define that infrastructure, if that makes sense. So this is a a nascent project, uh, but it is connected to a national initiative. Uh, That national initiative comes out of the Movement for Black Lives and the National Black Food and Justice Alliance, which both have called for whole scale reparations of land. And what they're trying to do is to support and network a series of regional people of color led land trusts and to provide technical assistance and coordination so that we're all working in concert. So our project in the Northeast is one. Uh, Saffon is starting one in the Southeast. We're working on the other regions, and then we'll all be connected uh, through this network at, at a national scale.
0: And that initial positive response of resources getting paired up with projects that are in need of them this i'm i'm hoping is a great kernel of okay there it is this is possible and if it's possible at a community organization level it changes the conversation at every level above it
1: Exactly. Because I don't really believe in telling folks to do things that we're not willing to do and try ourselves. I think it's very, very important uh, not to wait uh, for other people to determine our own destiny. So if we can go ahead and start a project and organize within our own communities, that provides a model and inspiration of, of what it would look, taste, feel, smell like to really repair the harm that racism has done in our community.
0: And I think that um, the other element that we haven't yet had a chance to talk on is the um, to talk about is the importance of the model that you are setting and that you are then able to help share forward with the graduates of your emer- immersion program and other trainings so that there isn't just one soul fire farm, but there are farms dotted across the country and groups and projects that can all model this forward in their, communities and networks so that it builds on itself over and over and over again.
1: That's exactly right. You know, a lot of foundations and even partner organizations encourage us to just keep growing, uh, which is a pretty capitalist model in my mind. Mm -hmm. Uh, They want us to franchise and replicate. But Soulfire is homegrown, right? We we listen to what our community needed, and that's how we were created. Yeah. So Soulfire might not be the solution for Portland, Oregon, right? Or Nashua, New Hampshire. Every place has its own needs. Mm-hmm. So our model instead is more like copying the mycelial network under yeah. the forest. It's about sharing resources, inspiring one another, staying connected to one another, but not trying to own or control each other's projects. So we're so excited that many, many of our alumni are building upon or starting new land-based projects like the Ubuntu Farm and Training Program outside of Atlanta, Georgia, uh, Wild Seed Community Farm and Healing Village in Millerton, New York, Harmony Homestead Farm in New Hampshire, and so on. So that's what really brings us a lot of joy and hope is to see our alumni doing exactly what needs to happen back in their own communities.
0: Yeah. Is there anything else you would like to add about about your work and um, the the importance of the messages and experiences in Farming While Black?
1: I think the only thing I would like to add is that, you know, we know that not everyone is going to be a farmer not everyone needs to be a farmer, but we all certainly need a connection to the earth. And that is part of fundamentally what it is to be human. Mm. And we all also need to contribute to justice and well-being in our world. Mm-hmm. So even if, you know, you're not a farmer, you're not black, I encourage folks to engage with the stories in the book because they are about awakening to this quest to find the intersection of what kind of healing and justice the world really needs and what are our passions, what really makes us come alive. And at that intersection is where we find our purpose in this
0: life. Leah Peniman is co-founder with her husband and children of the now cooperatively owned Soul Fire Farm in Petersburg, New York, a working not-for-profit farm committed to ending racism and injustice in the food system. The Soulfire Farm community raise life-giving food, and through that food celebration, education, and advocacy, they act in solidarity with people marginalized by food apartheid. As the farm website states, quote, With deep reverence for the land and the wisdom of our ancestors, we work to reclaim our collective right to belong to the earth and to have agency in the food system. We bring diverse communities together on this healing land to share skills on sustainable agriculture, natural building, spiritual activism, health, and environmental justice. We're training the next generation of activist farmers and strengthening the movements for food sovereignty and community self-determination, end quote. Leah's new book about her work and her life experiences leading to this work is Farming While Black. Since the publication of the book by Chelsea Green Press last fall, Leah has been speaking widely about the book and the work of Soul Fire Farm. Make sure to check out the Soul Fire Farm website to see when and if Leah will be speaking in a location near you. Join us again next week as the conversations continue when we're joined by Nadia Ruffin, based in Cincinnati, Ohio, an entomologist and an educator working to share her love of the natural world, from cockroaches and silkworms to soil and fresh produce, with students old and young. Nadia is a dedicated voice for the beauty and health of the intricate and interconnected systems all around us, no matter who we are or where we live. There are so many ways that people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. To make your tax-deductible listener contribution, please click the support button in the upper right-hand corner of any page at cultivatingplace.com. Thank you in advance for your help. Our producer is Matt Fidler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. For more information and many photos from Soul Fire Farm, head over to cultivatingplace.com and follow the links under the podcast tab. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.